Gibbs, founder of Incandescent Public Relations, publisher of Be Incandescent Business Magazine, and your host for the Incandescent Entrepreneur Show on the Incandescent Radio Network, the voice of entrepreneurs. The science of sex. That's what we'll be investigating today on the Incandescent Entrepreneur Radio Show. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, your host. To learn more about this fascinating topic, we are shining the spotlight on cognitive scientist Andrea Kuszewski, a behavior therapist and consultant who treats children and families with autism spectrum disorders, and she specializes in Asperger's syndrome. She also is regularly featured in Scientific American, Discovery Magazine, Qualcomm Spark, and Wired UK, among others. Andrea is now working on a new startup, which she just launched, called Impossible Labs. And she's going to tell us all about that and more. But first, we're going to start talking about the science of sex. So, Andrea, let's throw it over to you. Welcome to the show. So what is the science of sex? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, You know, the small questions first, right? What's the science of sex? The best way to kind of go about this is um, I'll touch on like the neuroscience of what's going on in the brain, but really kind of how that also relates to behavior, because that's really the most um, interesting and useful way to look at this. So first of all, one of the biggest myths that's out there with neuroscience is surrounding dopamine Oh, and oxytocin, the two of those. Um, So I want to explain what exactly those neurotransmitters do and what they don't do. So um, first of all, we hear we hear so much about dopamine, right? You know, the pleasure molecule, the pleasure neurotransmitter. Um, but what we've actually found out now in recent years is that it's actually more concerned with anticipation of pleasure rather than pleasure itself. So it's not that you experience something and it gives you a hit of dopamine. It's you you know something's coming or you know that you like something that might come, and the anticipation of that triggers dopamine in different ways. And I'll talk about that in a little more detail later. And so it's really about anticipation, not about the pleasure itself. And oxytocin, which people like to call the cuddle hormone, is actually not just about bonding. So it is released after, like after orgasm, for example, when you're close to someone, when you interface with someone or something, you get this hit of oxytocin. And what it does is it forms attachments or it strengthens attachments and bonds that are already there. So if you think about it that way, it's not just making you have a positive affect towards someone or something, but it strengthens the bond. So it can also have a negative effect. So what they found is it also um, strengthens stereotype behaviors as well. If you're prejudiced against some outgroup and they give you a spray of oxytocin, for example, you're not going to suddenly start liking them. You're actually going to be even more distanced from them. You're going to feel even more separated and more stereotyped against them. So that's actually one of the big myths about oxytocin I wanted to clear up. We're talking about this in the February issue of Be Incandescent magazine because ultimately we want business owners to embrace the science that you've done all this research on, not just in their personal lives, but in their professional lives. So we, what we're going to keep asking you about is to keep going deeper. And we first got turned on to your work from something that we found online when you were talking about how networking actually makes you smarter. And again, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But then I did a little more research and I found some Science 2.0 articles that you had published from your blog, The Rogue Neuron, that outlined the science of pleasure. And in part one, you talk about the allure of asymmetry. So tell us, what is the allure of asymmetry and what happens to your brain when you experience this kind of stuff? So this stuff is really fascinating. And the reason why relationships are so hard <laughs> is because the science behind um, sex, attraction, pleasure, all of these things is so nuanced 
that um, it's difficult to, you know, always be doing the right thing at the right time. So um, it's very nuanced. So I'll try to explain this. So when we're like in a stressed out state or we feel just like not quite together and we, we're searching for calm, we want peace, symmetry is very calming to us. So our brain likes that. It's like it puts us at ease. It kind of pulls us together. It calms us. It puts us in that nice grounded state. And so symmetry is pleasant and we like it and we, we think of it as attractive, right? So um, there were studies done where they showed symmetrical faces and, and more asymmetrical faces. And the average person has an asymmetrical face. That's just how we're made. Perfect symmetry really does not exist in humans. Um, some people come really close. Like Denzel Washington is said to have one of the most symmetrical faces. And of course, you look at him and yeah, he's an attractive man. But then other people that have, you know, clearly asymmetrical features, we see them and maybe we're like, oh, that person's really attractive. And we don't quite know why, but there's just something about them, you know. And so our brain prefers symmetry when we want to calm down, when we want to be relaxed. But when it comes to exciting us, when we want to get excited and roused, um, asymmetry is actually more attractive. And so that, that little bit of novelty, something different, the brain is really drawn to that because that, that is what triggers dopamine. So novelty, mystery, things that don't quite fit, things that aren't quite finished, you know, when there's that little bit hanging, um, it makes you wonder a little bit, dopamine is triggered. And as we know, you know, that's the anticipation of pleasure. And so it, it triggers that reward system. And so while we may find symmetrical things um, attractive and we may rate them as attractive, we still might be drawn to things that are more asymmetrical as well. And actually that, that goes with, um, you know, actual people too. So when you wonder why people are drawn to, you know, let's say you have the nice guy versus, you know, the bad boy. And you could think of like the nice person is like the calming, predictable, you know, everything is nothing out of the ordinary. And we say they're perfectly nice and they're a good person and we, you know, we like them. Right. But then you have the bad boy and maybe he's kind of a jerk and, but you, know, you never know what he's going to do. And he, maybe he does some things that are terrible but you're excited by it and you don't, you don't know why you're drawn to this person. And some of the, it's the novelty, you know, so that there are ways to get the novelty without having to go towards chaos and negativity as well. And you can have nice, pleasant things that are also exciting. And so it kind of goes both ways. It's very nuanced that way. It's fascinating. So who has a face who's asymmetrical that we tend to be attracted to like in Hollywood? Yeah. So the, the one that I picked for the article I wrote was uh, Joaquin Phoenix who is, you know, he has like that scar above his lip and he's got that one eye that's open a little bit more than the other one, but he's, you know, he's a hot guy, right? <laughs> so um, if you if you put his face, you know, in a computer algorithm that was, you know, rating for symmetry as the only basis for attraction or attractiveness, um, he would probably rate lower. Um, but if you ask someone, who are you more attracted to? they would probably be more attracted to someone like Joaquin Phoenix than maybe someone who looks like the cover of a Gap ad or something like that. Interesting. So we can take comfort in the fact that, you know, if we're not perfect, it actually may work for us in the, in the romance field. Yes. Yeah. And the key really is kind of knowing yourself and what your own preferences are and, you know, and then finding people that bring that to the table. We tend to like novel things. The brain tends to like novelty, but that's, of course, a spectrum of people that prefer more novelty versus less novelty. Some people just really like peaceful and calm and predictable, and that's just what they prefer. So, you know, within that little range of, you know, that end of the spectrum, a little bit of novelty on that end is good. And then some people are way on the other end of the scale where they need, they're just these, you know, thrill-seeking, novelty-seeking kinds of people by nature, 
well, they're going to prefer even more novel things on the other end. So they're they're probably the people that are attracted to more of the risk takers or someone you just never know what they're going to do. So there is there is a spectrum based on what you yourself prefer. So how does this play out in the workplace? Well, when you think about, you know, what your goals are. So if it's a really hectic environment and there's a lot going on and people are just, you know, barely keeping it together, you know, adding some predictability, some stability, some things that are more calming is probably a good thing, you know, because that helps people get grounded. But if your goal in the workplace is to get people more engaged, like let's say people are kind of bored in their job and they're just not really motivated and you just can't quite get them to kick it into gear. Well, that's where adding a little bit of the novelty, some autonomy, some things that are dopamine triggering, um, adding those things in are a good idea. So depending on what your goals are, you can kind of If you understand how dopamine works and how engagement, anticipation, and motivation, all that works, you can kind of use that to your advantage based on the situation. So it's it's really, you know, the context really kind of drives what's going to work best. So context and also personal preference and the situation that you're dealing with. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So this is part of a three-part series. And in part, that was part one. So in part two, you talk about your brain on sexual imagery. What is that? So what's fascinating is, and this goes all the way back to antiquity, and um, I went to art school in between psych degrees, um, and I studied uh, medical illustration, um, but I took a lot of art history because I found it absolutely fascinating. And one of, the, one of the things that's really interesting is when they were trying to depict, you know, sexual, like erotic imagery, um, completely nude is actually less sexually arousing than almost nude. Like if you have just a, a pair of pearls on or a pair of shoes, that was seen as highly more erotic than someone who is completely nude. And there's a reason for that. Because again, if you think about how dopamine works with anticipation, if you have something that's in a state of partial undress, or you can tell that something's about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet, and you just leave it hanging, our brain is kind of like stuck there like, wait, what? what's the next step? And, and you, you're compelled to try to finish that story. And so when you see something that is erotic, but not, you know, outright nude, it's actually sexier and you're more drawn to that and more aroused by that typically than if it was, you know, absolute nudity in kind of a clinical sense. So um, when you're creating, if you wanted to create images that are erotic and, and sexually enticing, rather than just having splayed out nude, um, having it be like as if it was a frame and a part of a story that isn't quite finished yet. Like something did happen, something's about to happen, maybe we don't quite know what that is, and we want to, we can insert ourselves in that story, we can see ourselves, you know, playing part of one of the actors, and we're more drawn into that, that's going to actually be more effective than if it was just, you know, let's say a screenshot from, you know, a sex film or something like that, where it's, you know, all there for you to see. Um, The anticipation isn't there because now you already see the ending. And so if we're guessing and wondering what that ending is, and we have that element of mystery, we keep that dopamine as high as possible, and that's actually then more arousing. So the key in these, they're neurotransmitters, right? Dopamine and oxytocin? Yes. So, and these are the chemicals that enhance pleasure. So again, how can we make this work for us at work? So really driving up anticipation as much as possible is one of the things that will keep motivation high. It'll keep, you know, satisfaction and pleasure high because you're constantly, you know, going towards something. And so... It also ties in with how how we learn and how we are driven to complete goals. So if we set challenging 
Like the sweet spot is challenging yet achievable. And so if it's difficult, we have to work at it a little bit. And we don't quite know when we're going to reach that goal. We don't quite know if we can even, we don't even know if we can do it. Maybe we can do it, but we're not quite sure. You know, that is going to result in the highest level of dopamine possible. And then once you do achieve that goal, well, then it's, then you have the, you know, that resolution of, you know, feeling good about yourself. You feel like, you know, you've accomplished something and then you're actually more compelled then to set another goal and then jump right into another challenge. And so the key really, you know, for high performance and high success is to constantly be setting these goals for yourself that are challenging yet achievable. And once you, once you achieve one goal, you already have the next one kind of lined up. And so you get in this positive feedback loop of constantly setting, you know, a challenge for yourself and setting that goal higher. And then you, you reach that one and then you're breaking through all these barriers and you keep that going for as long as possible. And you're keeping achievement high, motivations high and pleasures high. Wow. Fascinating. So are we slaves to our neurotransmitters? In a way we are, but <laughs> knowing, knowing what they do, we can kind of hack it for our own purpose. You know, we can harness that energy. I do this all the time in my own work. So, um, so right now I, I am working from my home office, so I have a lot of freedom, but also not a whole lot of structure. And so in order for me to stay motivated to keep performing at a high rate, you know, even when I have none of these checks and balances really in place, I have to artificially create those. And so if something good happens or I hear some good news or something's going to get published or something good happened to me, I will actually not permit myself to... <laughs> even think about that good thing or feel good about it until after I complete those difficult tasks that I'm in the middle of. It's like, I'll purposely hold back on that and I'll, I'll leave that anticipation going and I won't allow myself to kind of indulge in that until after I complete this other difficult thing. So I, I purposely set it up so that there's like that little bit of tension there and that kind of keeps me motivated to finish this really difficult task because then I know after I do that, then I can have this other pleasurable thing on the other side of that. Fascinating. That's so cool. And uh, in part three of your series, you talk about the neurological orgasm. Please tell us what that is. Yeah, so that relates to all the other stuff that I was talking about with dopamine and oxytocin. And so basically, so, you know, not every orgasm is the same, you know, and not every pleasure response is the same. So chemically, it's all the same, but the amount of time spent and the levels of chemicals and neurotransmitters that are released, it's all different based on the situation. And so if you know that some, that the anticipation of something makes something more exciting, it drives, it triggers more dopamine. So if we can draw out the anticipation for as long as possible before we allow ourselves to, let's say, you know, reach orgasm, hit that oxytocin, then we're actually going to have a stronger response and the oxytocin will be I don't know that you necessarily say you release more oxytocin, but the bond will end up being stronger because there was such that long, drawn-out pleasure response that now it packs an even bigger punch, as opposed to sex that happens in 30 seconds. You know, everyone's had good and bad sex, right? And so if it happens in 30 seconds, you know, maybe it's good for that 30 seconds, but there really wasn't much to it. Uh, maybe you still have an orgasm, but you can probably look back on other times where it was different and maybe there was a lot more dopamine involved and anticipation was greater and, you know, the mystery, the novelty, all these things were going on. And so even though, you know, physically the mechanics of it, you still, you know, had the orgasm in the first instance, the second one is going to be more enjoyable because of all the other elements involved. So the longer you can prolong 
that release of dopamine and the higher you can get that, the greater the pleasure response is going to be. You can see how that would play out in the workplace too, I would imagine, just that prolonging the anticipation of something good, like you were saying about how you structure at home. Well, here's the interesting thing about dopamine and anticipation. So there's, there's been a series of studies that were published a couple of years ago, and this is where um, it really kind of hammered home the idea that dopamine was all about motivation. And so they had people that were, um, I'm not sure exactly what the stimulus was for them, but it was something that they liked. So after they performed a simple task, they got this reward. Let's say, for example, it was, you know, an M&M or a piece of candy or something. And so they perform this task, they get the reward. And so they're, they're measuring dopamine in the brain. And so right before they get the reward, so they know it's going to happen, right? So they anticipate they're going to get it. They get the spike of dopamine and then they get the reward. Okay. And everything's fine. If you do this, let's say 20, 50 times in a row, and you know, you're always going to get that reward, you know, the dopamine will maybe be steady. It'll start to dwindle because now, well, one thing you're getting satiated on this reward, whatever it is, and you know, it's coming. So it gets kind of boring, right? So what they did was they took other people and they only gave them the reward maybe half the time or a third of the time, but they didn't know when they were going to get it. And so you would think like if, if you are doing something difficult and you get a reward every time, you think, you know, that's motivating for you to keep doing it. And so now if I'm telling you to do a difficult task, but you may or may not get a reward this time, it may, may not happen next time, but at some point you'll probably get one. Would you assume that the dopamine is going to spike higher or lower? Lower, right? But actually it's higher. So if you, if you don't know when the reward is coming, or even if you're going to get it at all, or maybe you won't be able to do the task and get the reward, you actually have a higher spike of dopamine, a lot higher, if you don't know it's coming versus if you know you're getting this reward every single time. And so if you think about that, knowing that we, we tend to have a more of a pleasure response, we tend to be motivated to engage in a behavior more if we don't exactly know when it's coming or what it's going to be. Um, you can kind of use that to your advantage. Let's say you want to um, create some perks or incentives for employees. If if they know that at the end of the day, everyone's going to get a free cup of coffee if they do, the, you know, if they finish these tasks, some people are going to really like it. And, you know, I love coffee, so that would be a nice, nice little free reward for me. But that's not really going to drive me to jump over a wall in order to accomplish these monumental things, you know, in order to get this cup of coffee. At some point, I'm just like, oh, it's just not worth it, right? But if they say, you will get a reward if you complete these things, but uh, we're not going to tell you what that reward is. Even if monetarily it's worth the same as a cup of coffee, you're actually going to be more motivated to engage in those behaviors to get that reward, even if it's less value than a cup of coffee, just because you don't know what it is. You know, that's kind of like the whole thing behind uh, Christmas presents. You don't know what they are or a birthday present. You know, you know that you're going to get a present because it's a holiday, but you don't know what it is. You know, it's a big secret. And that's a lot more exciting than you know, you pick out your own gift and then someone wraps it for you and you know you're getting it. And maybe you're happy to receive that thing because you want it, but it's not really as exciting as being surprised by something that you don't know is coming. You have also written an article called Sex Makes You Smarter and Can Virtual Sex Do the Same? Tell us about that. Yeah, that was a really popular piece <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Um, so, you know, the title is kind of a play on words a little bit and it's, it's meant to entice. Um, so here's the thing. So they found that sex, um, mice that engaged in more sex activities, 
with more novel females, so not the same one over and over again, but different females each time, they actually had more neurogenesis, which means they grew new neurons. And so the thing with um, neurogenesis is awesome because that means you have the potential to make more connections, which in turn makes you smarter, you know, more cognitive growth. So the key is though, um, so sexual activity, it does trigger that dopamine and all those other things in the reward cycle that also factor into learning and also create the highest learning state possible. And so sexual activity basically primes your brain for cognitive growth. But the key is you're not just going to be smarter after just having sex. It's like it, it primes your brain to be the optimal state for learning, but you still have to pick up that book and learn particle physics or whatever it is that you're studying in order to benefit from that. And so you're priming everything, you're getting everything ready, the perfect conditions for learning. But then you also have to go through the steps to learn that, that new thing. And if you do, then you're going to have a higher rate of learning and you're going to retain it longer and you're going to have more cognitive growth than you would have had your brain not been primed for that, you know, through that activity. That was the main finding from, from that research. And so basically, if you prime your brain by triggering the dopamine response and all these neurotransmitters that creates this optimal learning state, it triggers neurogenesis, then you're able to then take advantage of that to have optimal, you know, cognitive growth. And the thing is, is that you don't actually have to physically engage in a sexual activity in order to have that response triggered in the brain. The brain doesn't care whether you're in 2D, 3D, 4D or whatever, as long as that, that cycle is triggered, as long as those neurotransmitters are triggered. So that can happen through fantasizing. It can happen through virtual sex. It can happen through just, you know, reading an erotic novel, anything that is, is getting those things triggered. Um, it doesn't actually have to be physical. And so that was pretty exciting to find out. Yeah, absolutely. When we first started talking, I mentioned your research into how networking makes you smarter. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so basically that's uh, networking is one of the five principles that I've came up with to increase intelligence or your cognitive ability. And it's not that networking alone is going to make you smarter necessarily, but um, in conjunction with the other four things, networking is like the fifth principle. So all these five things together, that's one aspect that really um, helps to make you smarter. For one thing, we learn best when we teach other people. So if, if we are tasked with learning something, and we're told this is just for your own good, you know, learn this thing. Um, you'll learn it if you're interested in it. But if you know that you're going to have to teach other people that, you're actually going to learn it better. You're going to commit it to memory. And you're actually going to have a deeper understanding of that material if you think you're going to have to share it with other people. So when you have to explain something to other people, you're looking at it from different angles. You think of examples. When people interact with you, you're hearing different perspectives on a problem. And so the more ways that you conceptualize a problem or an item or something, anything that you're learning, the, the more ways that you look at it, the more times you look at it from a different perspective or reconceptualize it, um, you're actually making more connections in your brain. And so the more connections you make, the more cognitive growth you have, you know, and therefore um, that translates into, you know, higher cognitive ability. And so anytime that you're getting more feedback on something or engaging in a conversation about something or talking about something that's out of your, your normal field of expertise. Those are all conditions for cognitive growth. Right. Yeah, that makes sense, of course. So tell us about your startup, Impossible Labs. It sounds exciting. It is exciting. So what we're doing is we're taking a lot of these concepts in learning, uh, motivation, 
increasing intelligence, um, emotional agility, um, happiness, and all these things. And we've, we're creating a software program that is divided up into courses. And each course is by, you know, whatever it's teaching. So there's one on um, mental fitness that includes um, increasing food intelligence and motivation and creativity. And then there's, there's a course on emotional agility, which is not only how to generate positive emotions, but also how to deal with negative emotions and get those to work for you instead of against you. And so these are all um, courses that we offer. And as opposed to maybe if you would take a college course or an online course in these topics, instead of just telling you like, this is what they are and we're laying it out like a, you know, a college curriculum, um, what we're doing is we're, we're explaining what it is and we've broken down each concept into its component parts and we're teaching and training how to apply those concepts to your everyday life in really functional ways. So starting with, you know, breaking apart, what does it mean to think creatively? You know, it involves imagination, it involves problem solving, it involves cognitive flexibility. So each of these, each of these concepts is broken apart and it's taught separately. And then um, we start at the most basic level and then it builds up to the more complex level. And so by the time you get to the highest complexity of these skills, you've already practiced everything that that is entailed in and then you're able to learn it faster you learn it better and every exercise is taught in ways where you can apply it to your own life immediately so rather than just oh this is really interesting but then you walk away from it and you have no way to apply it this is specifically designed so that you can start applying these concepts to your own life immediately and so that way you're building habits of new behaviors rather than just learning about something and so that's basically what what we're doing we're getting ready to so we're, we're testing privately right now. So we haven't launched publicly yet for full public release, but it's happening very soon. Um, so if you do want to follow when we do finally launch to the public, um, if you follow my Twitter feed, I'll be tweeting about it extensively when it hits that stage. Very good. Can you give us three things to think about regarding the science of sex and how we can use that energy to help us be better, not just, of course, in the bedroom, but also in the boardroom? three concepts that are related to this. Um, probably the first one, um, if you're trying to motivate someone to change their behavior, and even yourself, if you're trying to motivate a behavior change in some way, um, don't focus so much on pleasure or what people like, but rather think about anticipation of pleasure or reward. So um, anticipation, if you can find ways to create anticipation, then motivation will increase as well. And so always thinking of it as it's kind of like the carrot and the stick. You don't want to make it too easy for someone, even yourself. You want to put a little bit of a challenge. And while it may seem a little bit counterintuitive, if you make things harder to attain, people will want them more. It's actually the way our brain is, is set up to work. So that would be the first one. Second one. So I guess if you think about relationships, and this can be with romantic or otherwise, if you want to really be happy and successful, the first thing you need to do is understand yourself and be really honest about what you prefer and what you like and what you mesh well with and what you're driven to seek out. And so a lot of people may think like on paper, they tell people, oh, I'm looking for, you know, a nice guy or a nice girl or I want stability. But if you really are kind of more drawn to novelty and you're more of a thrill seeking kind of person, you like to take risks, you like challenges, then you can still have a partner or a friend that's that's very nice and a good person, but maybe a little bit more exciting and more risk-taking. And so 
just being really honest about yourself and what you prefer and what you would mesh well with is going to is going to make you happier in the long run. So boring does not always mean nice and bad does not always mean exciting, but they can mean that. And I guess if you want to keep people interested and tuned in. So the third thing, um, if you want to keep people interested, you have to be interesting, um, be unexpected, do novel things, um, show them things I haven't seen before or weren't expecting. And don't be predictable and boring and you're going to get more engagement. So if your if your goal is to excite people, if your goal is to get more engagement, then you want to add novelty and unpredictability in there. If your goal is to create a sense of calm and you want that um, predictable nature, then you want to set things up that are more predictable and then you're going to get that kind of a response too. So understanding what your goals are and then aligning your goals with whatever kind of a motivational system or program that you set up. Makes perfect sense. Those are three excellent tips to celebrate Valentine's Day and the new year. Thank you so much for your time, Andrea, and good luck with Impossible Labs. Thank you. To learn more about Andrea, visit her website. I'm going to spell it for you, www.andreakuzewski com And of course, as I said, she is the cover story for the February 2015 issue of Be Incandescent magazine. You are listening to the Incandescent Entrepreneur Show on the Incandescent Radio Network. Be sure to read all about Andrea and her fascinating research and keep shining bright. Thank you again, Andrea. Have a great day and best of luck. So that's it for today's Incandescent Entrepreneur Show, where we always ask, what's your story? If you have a good one and would like to be interviewed on the Incandescent Entrepreneur Show, send me an email to hope at hopegibbs.com. Check back every Monday at noon for a new episode of the Incandescent Entrepreneur Show on the Incandescent Radio Network, www.incandescentradio.com. We look forward to talking to you next week. Here's to your incredible, indelible success. 